Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Maybe you're aware that among historians, there is something of a debate about how much you can learn from history. So some historians want to say that there are just too many differences. There's too much contextual difference, too much situational difference, and we can learn very little or or just a few things. And other historians want to say, well, actually, uh, there is lots we can learn, that there are differences and there are We need to recognize those, but actually the amount we can learn from history is is really huge. And maybe in this room, we all stand in different places on that debate uh, within historians. But there is something of a, a similar debate when we come to biblical history of the people of God. Because we might ask the question, what lessons can we learn as Christians today from Israel's successes and failures? Is our experience similar to them? Or is it very different from them? That's not just a question of academic interest, is it? It's very relevant. As we come this morning to Exodus 17, it's very relevant to you as you open your Bible and you read it. It's very relevant as we teach God's Word in a variety of different contexts. But thankfully, when it comes to that very debate, the Lord has told us how we should approach these things. In fact, We have in God's word what we might say uh, a divine interpretation, a divine answer to that very question. Because whilst we've just read from Exodus 17, I think it's helpful for us to jump forward to the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, a book that we're studying in our evening services, where in verses 1 to 6 and in verse 11, you have a Bible, please turn there, it'll be on the screens, but in verses 1 to 6 uh, and in verse 11, we read if we can see it on the screens, these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples, 
to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things as they did. And if we jump down to verse 11, that final sentence there on the screen, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the accumulation of the ages has come. So there in that passage, God is telling us what we can learn from the history of God's people in the Old Testament. There's lots of things we learn there, but but notice that we learn that there is one people of God there. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 10, we read that Paul describes those people in the past, the Israelites, as our ancestors. Now, he's not writing to an exclusively Jewish group. He's writing uh, to Jews and Gentiles, yet he is linking the people of God there in Corinth to the people of God in the Old Testament. We learn also that we share their temptations and we can learn from their examples. If you look at chapter verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So we can learn from their examples. We can learn from where they were tempted. But as you look down at verse 11, you notice also there is a difference. The difference is for us that the accumulation of the ages has come upon us. Now, what does that mean? Well, what Paul is telling us there is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who was pictured in the Old Testament, has come as promised in the New. And so whilst there are many links between us and the people of God in the Old Testament, it's not exactly the same. Because what they saw in shadow outline form, we see in fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in terms of that question of what can we learn from biblical history, well, there is a clear answer there in that passage, is there not? God has given us these true stories, recorded them for our benefits, so that we might learn from their example. And of course, the thing about example is, it's not always positive, is it? Very often it is. But this passage before us in Exodus 17 is perhaps one of the best uh, cases of a negative example in the Scriptures as we look at the people of God and what went wrong. We, We know that because as you look at Exodus chapter 17 and you look at verse 7 at the very end of the reading, you see there that the key thing that is highlighted in all that goes on is the grumbling and the quarreling of the people of God there in the passage. It's incredibly sad to see, but that is where we need to learn perhaps most this morning. It will be negatively as we see what they did wrongly, and then we learn positively in, uh, as God teaches us how we should respond differently. So in the children's, uh, in the bite-sized truth, James was talking about all the don'ts and the negative element. And the first three things we're going to see in our passage are all negative. And then we're going to see two things more positive. We're going to have five points this morning. We're going to move very quickly and we'll see five things we can learn from history. We can learn from these events in Exodus 17. And the first is that we should not, don't forget God's leading. Learning from the past, don't forget God's leading. And the key point here is that we see ever so clearly that God leads his people into this place of need. If you look down at verse 1, we read that the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin 
traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. So they're moving according to God's command, and they come to this place. End of verse 1, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So God leads them as his people, and he brings them to this place of need where there is no water for them to drink. Now, that's a pattern we've seen before, and so we're not going to spend long in this, but as we looked at the account of the situation at Mara, where the water was bitter, in chapter end of chapter 15, we saw that God led his people to that situation. As we think about chapter 16, we see that God led his people there to the situation of the lack of food in what is known as a desert of sin. And then as we come to chapter 17, we see as they come to Rephidim, God has led them here as well. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for this reason. How you think about, where, about how you came to be where you are affects how you see the problems that come with where you are. How you understand that you got somewhere affects how you read what is going on in that context. Now, there are wrong responses we can have to difficult situations in our lives. Sometimes uh, we can say, well, perhaps it's just that God has permitted this, but he didn't will this. Now, that doesn't help us at all because he's still in control if we're trying to respond to it in that way, but only permissively. It doesn't really makes sense in that sense. Other times we think, well, well, the, the devil has done this. It was the devil's work, and, and God, God wasn't involved in that sense. He wasn't in control. But why, we might ask then, did God not overrule him? That, perhaps that view makes the devil and God equal powers, takes God off the throne in that sense. Or, or sometimes a response to a difficult situation is that, well, we've messed things up. And it's all about us. God has relied on us to get it right, and we've messed it up, and that's why it's all wrong. And in that situation, we're saying the place of our need is all of us, and it's not God's leading. Now, we have to be honest, friends, that life has real hardship. It does have many struggles. And people might ask, how can God be in control if this has happened? But the answer in that struggle is not to take God off the throne. It is not to think that he is no longer sovereign. Because, friends, if God is not in control, where is our comfort? What hope is there in a world where God is not on the throne? So we must not think that these things, these hard situations, these places of need have come about because God is not in control. Instead, we remind ourselves of God's leading. And if God is leading, then my question in the struggle, the real struggle changes because it's no longer a response of panic or of crisis mode. And instead, I ask the question, what might be God's purpose in this? How does God want me to respond so that I might serve him and glorify him? And we come before God and we pray, Lord, give me grace to do that. Give me help to do that. So as we remember God's leading, that changes how we view our positions of need. Our first thing we see taught here. Secondly, we see that as we come into those situations of need, 
We are to not doubt that God's ways are good. The second thing to learn is do not doubt God's ways are good. And the key thing here for us to see is that Israel doubts the goodness of God. Because the heart of the problem that they face is not a problem with water. The biggest struggle that's going on here for them is not around the lack of a water supply. The biggest problem is doubts about the character of God. And they come out in the passage. If you look down at verse 2, when the people come and they quarrel with Moses, and they say, they say give us water to drink. Then if we look down at verse 3, they, they come and we read that they, that they grumbled against Moses, middle of the verse, and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? But ultimately, those quarrelings and those grumblings and that accusation is not fundamentally against Moses, is it? It's fundamentally against the Lord. And we see that as we look down at verse 7. Because there we read that as uh, it's summarized for us, the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the heart of what is going on here is doubting that God's ways are good. And so as they question, is God among us? What are they saying? They're saying, is God among us so that he is for us? They're not doubting that God is real in that sense. They're doubting that God is for them, that he is caring for them, that he is helping them. So in summary, as we look at this, as they doubt God's goodness, we might say that they are not questioning God's timing. They are questioning God's goodness. They are not questioning God's ability to help, but rather they are questioning whether he intends to help them. And their words in verse 3 convict them most seriously. Because that, well, if we think through what they're saying at the end of verse 3, they are saying that God is evil and he has brought them into the desert to murder them. That's why he's led them there. That's what they're saying. He's brought them, he, us here to kill us. And so friends, as we look here at Israel and we see what they do, the big reminder to us, what we learn is that we should never doubt that God's ways are good. God's timings can be mysterious, but we trust him because of his goodness. Now, that can be really hard <laughs> in the immediate situation. And I think one of the ways that we can train our hearts to not respond with doubting of God's character is to work hard to look for signs of God's kindness and God's goodness in the midst of those very, very hard situations. I remember vividly a godly lady in the church in Leeds who, whenever there was a situation that was hard that she and her family would face, she always instinctively looked for signs of God's goodness and kindness in it, even in the midst of what was difficult. And she was a great example to Naomi and I in that way. And friends, that's what we need to do. Maybe to help us to do that, as, as we report as to one another and share with one another, Maybe we need to deliberately think, how can I 
speak of God's goodness and kindness that I can see in this situation? Maybe we need to ask each other the question as we talk with one another about things. Where do we see God's kindness and goodness in that? Not to deny what is hard and, and, and that not to put it to one side and just say everything's fine, isn't it? It's not. But to still remember that God is at work according to his goodness and his kindness. This lady was not a natural optimist in that sense. She worked hard at it, and we need to do the same, friends. And it seems to me that as life goes on, that challenge to do that gets harder and harder because the circumstances we face and the challenges we face seem to get bigger and bigger, don't they? I mean, just think of how that gets worked out in the lives of, maybe our lives as, as parents if we've been blessed with children. You know, when your baby, first child is born, and you... They say, you have to go home from the hospital now, and you start shaking because you've got to think, I've got to fit them somehow into the uh, car seat. And you've practiced at home, and you think, it's going to be fine. But it never works as easy as that, but you get them in the car seat, and you think, I've got to drive the car. (laughs) And you get them home in the car, and then you think, I've got to to put them to sleep at night, and and trust God as as they sleep. And as they grow, you've got to... Send them to school and, and trust God as they go to school and as they grow up. And you've got to trust God. In, it's bigger and bigger and bigger and the burdens get greater and greater. It's not just parenting. It happens with our health, doesn't it? And generally speaking, in the kindness of God, as we are younger, we have fewer health struggles, generally speaking. As we're older, I'm learning, it gets harder. And things tend to be more substantial. And as we learn to trust God in those smaller things and we see his kindness and his goodness in those earlier ways, we train our hearts to respond in godly ways as the challenges grow greater. So start now, friends. Learn scriptures that speak of God's kindness and goodness. Teach your hearts more and more of those things. Build, as you might say, that spiritual muscle memory so that you're always looking for signs of God's kindness and instinctively trusting in his goodness. Do not doubt that God's ways are good. And then we come to our third point. Do not put God on trial. Israel's stance towards the Lord God here is sinful, and we need to see this very clearly, because Israel do something we should never do. What they do is they sit before God as judge, And they try to put the Lord God firmly in the dock as the one whom they are judging. In the passage, there are many elements of it that that have a sense of a courtroom or a trial. So Israel come before the Lord and Moses, and they issue this command, don't they? Give us water to drink. It's not a, please may we have. It's not a, We need water. It's a command. Give us water. And then you'll notice they are the ones to ask the questions in verse 3. They fire their questions there towards the Lord. And in doing so, they are asking God to justify himself. They're setting themselves up as as judge and jury over the Lord. And then they, they, in verse 4, execute, they are ready to execute judgment upon the servant of the Lord because Moses says to God, they are almost ready to stone me. So they are ready to execute their own judgment on God's servant whom has been leading them because they want to stone him. 
And Moses sees the seriousness of their stance towards God in putting God on trial. Because look, he says, verse 2, why do you put the Lord to the test? Why do you put the Lord on trial? And then verse 4, he says, what hope is there? What am I to do with these people? Moses sees just how serious their action is here. And, And what they're doing is they are following what they learnt in Egypt. Because what did they learn in Egypt? They saw Pharaoh do what? Put himself above the Lord and start calling the shots. And that's what they're doing now. Because they're still going back to what Pharaoh, they saw Pharaoh do in Egypt. And friends, we must not do this. We must not do this because when we put God on trial, we are saying that he is no longer the center of the universe. What we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the center and we're saying that he is answerable to us. But how often is it that people do this? They say, well, God needs to prove something to me. And God has given us all that we need in his word to know. People might say, well, God needs to explain himself to me. And ultimately, as we do that, what are they trying to do? Well, they are applying their standards to God's actions and asking God to give an account according to their moral standards. That's wrong. The God of heaven and earth does not need to explain himself to you or to me, or to anyone. That he does in the scriptures, in many of our questions, is a kindness of God. But it's not a requirement. He sets the moral standards, not you. He is the center, not you. So sometimes we can think, well, the key question is, what do I think of God? That's not the key question. The key question is, what does God think of you? Friends, when we do this, we're like an angry child thundering, how dare you at adults? Because they have not done what they want them to do. And ultimately... It's wrong. It's unseemly. It's not right. God is the creator. We are the creatures. How dare we, we might say. How dare we? God is God. In him we live and move and have our being. My friends, only you know your heart. But be careful in your heart, therefore, to never take a position above God as judge. Bring your questions. Seek answers in his word. But never judge, pretending you know better. Don't put God on trial. Instead, fourthly, do something else. Seek God's life giving presence. Seek God's life-giving presence. And here the key point for us to see is that God shows his grace in his presence and provision. Now, as we've dug somewhat into what Israel were doing here, we might be astonished that the Lord would do anything for them. 
You know, we might be astonished that, that the Lord allowed them to, to live for another moment. And God doesn't just do that. He does so much more than that because what does he do? He provides water from this rock. And we read about it there. God's instructions in verse 6 and 7. Uh, and that is what happened as Moses followed uh, the Lord's command. God, Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God says, go at this, to this rock and strike this rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. And you think that's an amazing thing that God, well, that God first of all will provide water from this rock, that he would do this miracle in public in a way that was verified by others in such large volumes, it seems. This is not just a trickle of water that comes forth. It's enough to feed millions of, sorry, to water millions of people. We might be astonished at the miracle because, you know, it, it connects the power of God back to Egypt, doesn't it? Because it's Moses' staff that was used there to bring about the plagues. And, and what is God saying? God is saying it in this demonstration of his provision that, that he is the same God acting with the same power according to his same grace in their lives. And that's all astonishing, isn't it, when you see it? But it's even more than that, friends, because there's something even greater. Because the provision of the water is not the greatest miracle. What's the greatest miracle? That God appears in some way to assure them of his continued presence. And I put it to you that the provision of water should astonish us. But God's ongoing presence with his people in light of all that they have done should take our breath away. Because Israel needed so much more than water. How long would the water last? Well, as long as they're at Rephidim. But the presence of God, they need every day. And that assurance of his presence, which is, of course, the key issue in verse 7, as it's all summarized for them, as they say, the question is, is a Lord among us or not? The answer is given. At start of verse 6, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. God's going to appear. We don't know how. That's not a question we need to ask. What's important is what it signifies. Ongoing presence. And friends, when we are brought by God's leading into that place of great need, that is what matters most. It matters more, and hear me carefully as I say this, but I think, it's commended, I think this is true, it matters more than any need that you might bring before him. Now I know what that means. That means big things, that means hard things. But what you and I need even more than God's provision is his ongoing presence. Because if God is with us, well, we can face anything, can't we? And if God has abandoned us, then we dare not take another breath. So let me ask you, what's on your prayer list right now? 
What are you praying for each day? What things come to your mind even before you have to start writing down a prayer list? (laughs) Even before you have to think, what should I pray for? Because they're there and they're burdens on your hearts. I'm sure there are many things that make up that prayer list. But I hope the top of that prayer list is that you might know more of God's presence with you. That you might know that assurance that because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is with you. That's promised, as James so helpfully prayed. That's assured in the gospel. And then that your experience, your your knowledge of that presence, your awareness of that presence would grow and grow as you know more of him. Is that your biggest prayer? David's really prayer. We haven't got time to read it. In, oh no, we must, must read it. Psalm, Psalm 16, forgive me, we're going to go there because it's just one of those psalms that's so glorious. Turn with me to Psalm 16. What do we read? <clears throat> Psalm 16, verse 1. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. So David is in a struggle. He's in the midst of a position of need. We don't know what it is, but we know that he needs God's help. And then notice how he prays, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, these are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods, nor take up their names on my lips. How does David think of God? What's his prayer here? Lord, you alone are my portion of my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance in the midst of all his struggles. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always but on the Lord. With him at my right hand I shall not be shaken. And look at how he concludes. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Friends, I wonder, is that your prayer? Lord, in the midst of all that is hard, and it is, in the midst of all that is a struggle, and it is, Lord, fill me with the joy of your presence. May I know even more those eternal pleasures at your right hand and may my hope of what is to come in heaven where I'll know that for all of eternity be stronger and stronger as you work in me by your Spirit. So then we might ask the key question, if we are to seek God's life-giving presence, how can we know it? And here's our fifth and final point. Come to the rock that is Christ. Come to the rock that is Christ. The key point for us to see here is that we can know, we can be sure of God's presence because of Christ. We can be sure of God's presence because of Christ. Now, it's, we have to be careful as we think of Israel in the Old Testament because there are times, and individuals in the Old Testament, there are times when we have to be so careful that we don't judge what is going on in people's hearts. We should be careful of that in life as well. But in Psalm 95 and verses 7 to 9, we get 
an insight into what is going on in the hearts of God's people. Because there, in the second half of verse 7 through to verse 9, we read this. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. So what was going on in their hearts? Their hearts were hardened to God. That is what we don't want, friends. So how can we avoid a hard heart? Well, it is not by trying harder ourselves. Because by nature, your heart and my heart is no different to the hearts of the Israelites in the Old Testament. That is to say, we are sinful because we are in Adam by birth, and we are sinful because we sin in our actions. So what do we need to do? Well, friends, we need to look to the rock that is Christ. Because Christ has come and he has offered himself for our sins. So that even though we are like the people of God here, in Christ we can be forgiven as we trust in him. Because though our hearts are hardened, though our hearts are sinful, Christ forgives us by his grace and through his work on the cross. And that means as we look to Jesus and as we're in Jesus, God looks upon us differently in Christ. And then having known and seen and received that forgiveness, what do we know? What are we assured of in each and every circumstance? Well, it's this, that God is good, that God is for me, that God is with me, because he has confirmed that fully and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I think of all that God did for me in Christ, all the, the doubts about his goodness are answered. All the real struggles in those circumstances find their answer. And so as we remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to us, that is how we do not harden our heart to the Lord. That is how we do not put him on trial because we look at the cross And we say, if our Saviour, if our God will do that for us, then we can know he is always for us. And friends, Christ's sacrifice means that we are certain of God's ongoing favour. Which takes us back then to where we started. Because if you jump back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10... And maybe you heard it as we read it right at the beginning. There in verse 4, speaking of Israel, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, we could think about that for a long time. And there are lots of different answers to that question. But let me put it to you that it means at least this. It means at least that just as Israel knew God's undeserved blessing and grace, we too today know that same undeserved blessing and grace. And in that way, at least... 
Christ is being pictured for us in all that God is doing for his people. In God's attitude towards them, in his grace and kindness to them. So in that way, Christ is being pictured in the water that comes from the rock. Christ is being pictured in the rock. Christ is being pictured in the manna. Christ is being pictured in that deliverance. He's being pictured all the way through because God is showing grace and kindness to his people. God is pointing to the saviour who is to come, who will be that great and glorious and full and final display of God's grace and kindness to us. Now, there are many more things we could say, but if you want to get into some of this, and I don't agree with everything that Henry Law says here, but if you want to think further of this, this book has blessed my heart this week, and it's blessed my heart in weeks I've been preparing. It's called The Gospel in Exodus by a Puritan Anglican man called Henry Law. And he does all kinds of exciting things with pictures of Christ through Exodus. And in this regard here, it's so helpful to see Christ being pictured in that undeserved blessing and grace. And what does that remind us, friends? Well, it reminds us that outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. It reminds us that that outside of Christ, God is not with you. Outside of Christ, God is not for you because you're a sinner and subject to judgment. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in Christ, friends, in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, what do we say? We say God is for us and always will be. That is our hope. That is our confidence. And the Spirit comes and seals the presence of Christ in our hearts. And so that is our joy, friends. And so let me ask you, if you haven't come to Jesus Christ and trusted him by faith, what is stopping you? What is holding you back? Why don't you come? You know that you're a sinner. You know that God is holy. You know that eternity is real. Come to him and know forgiveness. And friends, if you have come, and if you know him, then God's word declares that you are more than conquerors because of his love to you. So keep coming back to the rock that is Christ and always stay there drinking from that fountain of grace.